Well, it's certainly good to see everybody who is gathered together here to worship tonight. I'm thankful for the visitors that are here. Many have traveled for quite a ways to be here and to worship with us tonight. And I would maybe try and venture to name all of them, but many older and smarter preachers than me err on the side of wisdom and don't do that whenever there are visiting preachers and visitors in the crowd. They just say welcome and thank you to everybody. And so I'll defer to their better judgment, but I certainly am thankful for everybody that's decided to be here and to worship with us. And hopefully we'll be studying some things that are beneficial to us from the Word of God. We're going to be studying an Old Testament account of some things that really happened. Oftentimes we talk about studying Old Testament stories, and they are stories in a way, and that it's a little enclosed writing that we can go and look to and learn about, but it's not some fable. It's not some make-believe thing that happened. It's history that's been recorded for us infallibly by God. And so we're going to be looking at the history of God's people tonight. Particularly, we're going to be looking at the histories of these three men who you see on the board. And I know the podium might be in the way a little bit, but their names are Ahab and Jehu and Jehonadab. I gave this sermon earlier this summer at a place and somebody came up to me afterward and they said I was just dreading when I saw the name Ahab on the board because I heard four sermons on Ahab in the last six months and I was worried you were going to be the fifth. And don't worry, that's probably not going to happen because Ahab is going to be the one we talk about the least tonight. There is a lot of material in the Bible about Ahab from 1 Kings 16 all the way through the end of 1 Kings in chapter 22. And yet he still has a lasting impact well after he has died because when we turn around to 2 Kings chapter 9 where Jehu comes on the scene, Ahab is still a topic of conversation. Ahab was a particularly wicked king, and God dealt with him on many different occasions, giving him opportunity to repent. On one occasion, Syria came up against the city of Samaria in Israel, and Israel repelled them because God helped them. And then they went home, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, he huddled around with his advisors, and he said, what went wrong? And they all said, well, their God is a God of the hills, and our gods are the gods of the plains. And so if we meet them in the plains for our warfare, we'll beat them. And so God goes to Ahab, and he says, you're going to win because they've thought to mock me. I'll show them that I'm the God over all the earth. And so he goes out and he routs their army, but he does not kill Ben-Hadad when he takes them captive. So God tells Ahab, since you did not kill the man appointed to die, it's your life in the place of his. And Ahab goes to his bedchamber sullen and displeased. He does not kill him right then, though. Ahab lives a while longer. He gets to looking at a beautiful hill across from his palace in Samaria. And he says, I'd like that to be mine. I'd like to plant a vegetable garden there. And so he goes and meets with the man that owns it, a man by the name of Naboth. And he says, I'd like to buy this land from you or exchange it for some equally good or better land. And Naboth says, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do that. This is the land of my father's. It's my inheritance. According to the old law, a man could not sell his inherited land. He could lease it out until the next year of Jubilee, but he couldn't sell it. And so Naboth knew something of the law, and Ahab went to his bedchamber again, sullen and displeased, the Scripture tells us. Jezebel hears word that this happened, and she goes and basically chews him out, says, you're the king, what are you pouting about? And she makes sure that Naboth dies in a false trial, and then Ahab seizes the land, and God goes to him again and says, you're going to die for this. You've killed a just and innocent man. And he pouts again. This time he repents in sackcloth and ashes. And God tells him, okay, I'm going to tear the kingdom from your hands. 
but not in your lifetime. I'll do it in the lifetime of your son. And so eventually Ahab's disobedience catches up with him. He goes to war against the Syrians again. Micaiah the prophet tells him, go, it'll be well with you. And he's sarcastic when he says it. So Ahab says, no, tell me the truth. And he says, you're going to go and you're going to die. And Ahab goes and fights anyway and is killed by an arrow. That's Ahab. We're done with him. Mostly. Ahab was a very wicked man. He was a very prolific man. He had kids all over the place. And so that's where we pick up in 2 Kings chapter 9. God has to fulfill his promise to tear the kingdom away from the descendants of Ahab. And he's going to accomplish this amazing feat by the work of a man named Jehu. In 2 Kings chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, it says, And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Ramoth-Gilead is one of the cities that's right on the border between the kingdom of Syria in the kingdom of Israel. And so they're in this perpetual war. It is a city that has been transferred back and forth as they fight for it. And right now the Israelites have it. He tells this prophet, go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of all my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hands of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master. And one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know the man and his babble. He's just been told by the son of the prophet that he's going to be king and he's going to go and kill all the descendants of Ahab and he's going to take vengeance on the enemies of the Lord and he's going to go and accomplish all this with God's blessing and he steps out of the room where he's told all this, the prophet flees and his friends and fellow captains of the army stand and look at him and say, what did that crazy guy want? And he says, nothing, he's crazy as he has oil dripping down his face because he's just been anointed. The, prophet took a horn of oil in his hand. And so they say, a lie. Tell us now. So he said, thus and thus he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. And they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. An amazing thing happens here. Joram, king of Israel, 
is not in Ramoth Gilead with his army. He's away in the city of Jezreel. So all the armies gathered together here, and Jehu is told by this one odd man that runs up to him and says he has a message that God has anointed him king, and he tells the other commanders that, and they all rush to make it so. They blow the trumpets and proclaim him king. They tear off their outer garments and lay it before him on the steps so he can proceed down in a kingly manner. God already is giving the deliverance of all of his promises into the hand of Jehu. And Jehu is not one to squander this opportunity. He is a skilled man in warfare and politics. Doubtlessly, that's part of why God chose him. And so he knows immediately these things are not going to be kept secret. There's going to be messengers going to the city of Jezreel, where King Joram currently is. And so he gets all the men together at Ramoth Gilead. He picks a company of men to go with him, and he rides for Jezreel in his chariot. Apparently, he was a pretty good charioteer. Because as he draws near to the city of Jezreel where King Joram is, there are some men up in the watchtower and they look down and they see this man coming across the plains in his chariot and they say, that looks like Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, for he drives his chariot furiously. I think there are a lot of people that we ought to call Jehu because they drive their chariots furiously. But he was recognizable for his skill in driving the chariot. They couldn't make out his features or who he was, but they knew that he drove that chariot in a skillful, in a furious way. It had to be Jehu, nobody else. And so they send out a messenger to him. This commander from the front line of the war with the Syrians, they send a messenger. They say, is it peace, Jehu? And he tells the messenger, what do you have to do with peace? Turn in and follow me. And so the messenger, he just melts into the ranks of the men with Jehu, and Jehu keeps on in his ride towards Jezreel. And they say, well, that's weird. And they send another messenger. Is it peace, Jehu? What do you have to do with peace? Turn in and follow me. And so that messenger disappears within his ranks. And finally, King Joram, who was probably a little bit too trusting at this point, he says, the messengers aren't coming back. Get my chariot ready. And so he rides out by himself, apparently, to go and meet Jehu. Actually, he wasn't by himself. He had another man with him named Ahaziah, king of Judah. Now, Joram is the son of Ahab, sitting on the throne in Israel. Ahaziah is the grandson of Ahab through one of Ahab's daughters, sitting in the throne in Judah. Two kings of the people of God ride out, apparently without guard or without enough guard, to meet Jehu. And they say, is it peace, Jehu? The million dollar question. Jehu says, how can there be peace when the harlotries and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel are so many in the land? And so Joram cries out, treachery, just in time to be shot with an arrow and die. He's gone quickly. Ahaziah hears the cry out and he runs. He tries to escape in his chariot and Jehu's men pursue him and shoot him. And Jehu marches into the city of Jezreel without having fought a war to do so. He's killed two kings of the people of God. He's done all God has appointed to him to do so far. And as he marches into Jezreel, there's only one person left, Jezebel. Ahab died. Jezebel was still living. The scripture calls her the queen mother, which is kind of different because she was the king's mother. Why is she called the queen mother? 
Well, because the king was kind of a figurehead. She's the one that had the power. She was still queen in Israel. And so he marches into the city and she's up in a tower and she's mocking him. She calls him Zimri, which was a real zinger if you were familiar with the kings of Israel, because that was a man that rebelled against his master. And then after about two weeks of being on the throne, he was killed and the man that took his place was Ahab's father. And so she basically tells Jehu, you're going to be a short-lived king. And Jehu looks up there and he gets the last laugh because she has a bunch of eunuchs attending to her in the tower. And he tells them, how many of you are with me? And a couple of them, they turn and look at him. And that's good enough for him. He says, throw her out. And so they throw Jezebel out of the window. She hits the ground and dies. And he goes in to rest and recuperate from his journey. And he gets to thinking to himself, well, she's the daughter of a king. I'd better give her a proper burial. And he comes out. And her body's been eaten by dogs, and nothing's left but the skull of her head, her hands, and her feet. And so at this point, I imagine he realizes this whole prophecy from God thing is real, because just like God said would happen, it's happened. And so he kicks it into high gear. He leaves from there right away, and he seeks to kill all of the descendants of Ahab that are left in Israel. Actually, he doesn't leave just yet. The first thing that he does is he writes letters to the city of Samaria and all the other cities in the area. And he says, you'll have descendants of Ahab living with you. You have fortified cities. You have weapons and chariots. So pick out the best men to challenge me and go ahead and send them to me and we'll have our war and see who will have the throne in the end. And they write back to him all these men that have been raising the sons of Ahab, these chief men of these different cities, because that's the way kings would do it back then. It was no good to have 80 sons if they all lived under the same roof and one foreign army could come in and kill them and end your dynasty. So they spread them out all over the place. They had leading men in prominent cities teach their children about politics and about governing. And at the same time, the king had spies on all of the wealthy and powerful members of his kingdom. Well, Ahab's sons are scattered. He writes these letters to the chief men of these different cities. He says, have your pick of a man to come and fight me. They write back. They say, we want nothing to do with fighting you. You've killed two kings already. That's good enough for us. Tell us what you want us to do. And so Jehu tells them, okay, by this time tomorrow... I want the heads of the sons of Ahab piled at the gate of the city of Jezreel. And they make it happen. That time tomorrow, there are 70 heads piled up there. He proceeds to go throughout the countryside with his men. Forty-two men come down from Judah, who he meets. And he greets them in the road and says, well, who are you all? And they say, we're the brothers of King Ahaziah of Judah. We've come down to visit Jezebel. They don't know what all's happened. And so he says, come aside with me for a while. And he takes them prisoner and kills them. He's going around killing all of the descendants of Ahab that he can find. And finally, in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 15, it says, now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab. Jehonadab. That's the third guy on our board tonight. He's important. Pay attention when his name comes up. When he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up into his chariot. Then he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. Something weird just happened here. 
the Bible writer gives us some information that we have to read between the lines about to figure out what's going on. We're told this man, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, comes to meet Jehu. Jehu greets him like a friend. He says, are we on the same page about everything? If so, come with me. And we don't know anything about Jehonadab. Well, we know he's a son of Rechab. If you look throughout the different genealogies and the list of tribes and the books of Kings and Chronicles and Numbers, then you'll find that the Rechabites are part of the tribe of the Kenites, who are part of the tribe of the Midianites, specifically those that came into the Promised Land with the descendants of Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. It's a bunch of names that means nothing to most people. Here's what it means. These were people that lived among the people of God in the promised land that were not part of the tribes of Israel. They served God faithfully, and yet they had no inheritance among the tribes. Jehonadab is one of them. And so when everybody else seems to have fallen away from God, Jehu finds Jehonadab. He says, we on the same page? We are on the same page. Come see my zeal. For God, And so he has a new, important, powerful ally in the fight that he's about to pick because he's just about dealt with the Ahab problem. In fact, it says in verse 17, he came to Samaria. He killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Jehu was told, go and kill the descendants of Ahab, what many people would think is an impossible task. And he goes and does it immediately, straight away. And now, he's king, real and established. There's no more challengers to the throne. And so as the first act of his kingship, he's going to get rid of the Baal worshipers. He's going to do what all the other kings of Israel should have done before him. As king, they had to make sure their nation served the one true God. And so in verse 18, it says, Then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. That wicked, awful king who did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than all the other kings before him, he served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. He didn't tell them that also whoever showed up shall not live. Because it says, Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And so Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. Think of a building the size of a state capital, full to the brim with all the worshipers of Baal and all the kingdom of Israel. Probably hundreds of thousands of people. It was full from one end to the other. Then, in verse 22, he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Apparently they had some sort of regalia or clothing that they'd wear as part of their worship. And Jehu says... Bring it out for all of them. Now, to them, this was part of their worship. To Jehu, that was them putting on a target that says, kill me. Then, it says in verse 23, Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, he's still here, they went to the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Now, again, would make sense to the worshipers of Baal. None of those Yahweh worshipers, spies, they hate us. 
Well, to Jehu, he's making sure there's no casualties. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside. And he said, if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Now it happened as soon as he'd made an end of the offering of the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them, let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal, and they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. What an amazing guy. God tells him to jump, and he doesn't ask how high. He jumps as high as he can, and then he jumps again. God tells him to kill the descendants of Ahab, and he goes and does it immediately, and then he decides, I'd better get rid of all the Baal worshipers too while I'm at it. And so he goes and does that. Verse 29, however, ooh, that's a scary word. When there's a long list of really good things, and then you get a however, that can never be good. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin. That is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done according to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. Are you all familiar with Jeroboam? There's also a lot of sermons about him. I didn't write his name on the board because then people would really be afraid. But I'll just briefly say he was a man that had an amazing promise from God. When Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, became king over all the 12 tribes, Rehoboam was told by the people, please lighten the load of the taxes. And so he went to his young men that were his friends and he said, what should I do? And they said, well, you tell them that your pinky finger will be as wide around as your father's waist. And so he goes and tells the people that. I'll tax you all I want to and more, far and above what my father did. And then all the men of Israel said, what part do we have with the son of Jesse? And so they all went home to their tents and they left him in his empty, sad little kingdom. Only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin stayed with him. And so the ten tribes in the north, they rallied around a man named Jeroboam. And God spoke to Jeroboam through a prophet and said, If you will serve me faithfully because I have determined these things to take place, then I will establish your family, your descendants after you, like the household of David. In other words, they'll never be cut off as long as you're faithful to me. It's an amazing promise. What does Jeroboam do? He gets to thinking. The devil works on him. He has this promise from God that by all means should be certain. And still, he says, you know, Jerusalem is still in the nation of Judah. And when all the people get together so many times a year to go down and worship there in Jerusalem, they'll be knit together with their old countrymen again. And they'll become one people and they'll come and oust me and kill me. And so I have to keep them out of Jerusalem. I'll set up a golden calf at Dan and Bethel, the northernmost and southernmost parts of the kingdom of Israel, so that wherever you are, it's closer to go worship there than to go down to Jerusalem and worship. 
And then I'll make sure all the people worship there and I'll keep the people of Israel separate and to myself. And so he didn't trust the promise of God and he was not established. Jehu, he seems to make the same mistake. The scripture doesn't just say that he tolerated the golden calves. It says he sinned the same sin as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. I take that to mean he knew better and still chose to keep the calves because it was politically advantageous. In fact, if you think about it, he's only ever done what's politically advantageous. He went and, sure, if you crown me king, I'll kill all the opposition. I'll kill all the remnant of the household of Ahab. I'll kill the queen who has all her power. I'll kill all the Baal worshipers because they were the chief members of the kingdom under the reign of Queen Jezebel. They were her foremost people that she looked to to accomplish her will in the nation. I'll kill the Baal worshipers, but I'll lie while I do it. I won't ask God for His help to do it. And I'll keep the golden calves because that's advantageous. I'll keep my people here and I'll keep them away from those people down south and we'll still stay separate and I'll still have my kingdom. I don't know if he was that openly malicious about his intentions because God does seem to be somewhat pleased with him, but God sure enough does not establish him. And so we see that Ahab has one descendant sit on the throne in Israel and not even really then because his mother is still lording over him during his reign. Jehu has Four men come after him and sit on the throne in Israel. And you know, God wasn't just unfair to these men. They all had their chance to be good kings, and yet none of them were. They progressively got worse after Jehu. They set up graven images rather than tearing them down. They added to the sins of Jeroboam that were remaining in Israel. What about this Jehonadab guy? You know, we brought him up, but we haven't really dealt with him at all. If you were to go through and read 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, you wouldn't find anything else about him. You know, it's kind of disappointing. We're told so very little about him, but he does come up in one other place. And it is a very telling scripture about him. All the way in Jeremiah chapter 35 of all places. Jeremiah, he was a prophet that had a very sad task. He was told to go and preach to the people of Jerusalem and Judea that their destruction was upon them and to let it happen. To be at peace with Babylon. To be at peace with the nations that were going to come in and overflow and take over. And to live among them in peace until the prescribed amount of time of 70 years was up and then they could return to their land in peace and in so doing even take riches and wealth with them. He told the people to let it happen and still they repeatedly rebelled against the kings of Babylon. And so Babylon came in, destroyed Jerusalem entirely, destroyed the temple, and they still had to wait through the captivity. So... Jeremiah had a largely unsuccessful ministry. In fact, he's often called the weeping prophet because he also wrote the book of Lamentations about all of his woe and distress over the people of God and how far they've fallen and how God has seemingly forsaken them. And yet, the one bright spot I've been able to find in the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah 35, where God tells him, Jeremiah, there are some people that I want you to meet. I want you to call the Rechabites here. Call them into the temple. Set wine before them in bowls and cups. I imagine they were serving bowls that you could fill your cup in. And it was in the temple, so it wouldn't have been fermented or alcoholic wine. It would just 
been grape juice, but be hospitable to them. Bring them into the one of the rooms of the temple. Set wine before them in bowls and cups. And so he does that. And all the tribe of the Rechabites is gathered together there. And in verse 6 of Jeremiah 35, but they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. These are some weird people. They're weird. They really are. Because their dad, 244 years earlier, we'd call him a Pharisee, 244 years earlier, he said, don't drink grape juice ever. Don't build houses, don't plant fields, don't sow seeds, don't live in cities, live in tents all your lives. And it'll be well with you and you'll live many days in the land with your sojourners. And they went and did it, those crazy people. But maybe they weren't so crazy because if you notice very carefully, Jonadab tells them something that's from Scripture. He tells them, if you'll listen to my words, You'll live many days in the land where you are sojourners. And that should ring a bell to us. That's the fifth commandment. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we'll turn there and read verse 16. Moses tells the people, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Rechabites, they weren't given the land. They were just sojourners there. They did not have an inheritance among Israel. They just lived there. And so he tells them, Obey my words. You'll live many days in the land where you're sojourners. Fifth commandment. I think that he was actually a man well acquainted with Scripture based on some of the things that he tells them. Because in so telling them not to partake of the fat of the land, not to build beautiful houses and dwell in them, not to plant seed or have vineyards or orchards, but to live in tents, he preserved them against many of the evils that would come against their countrymen. If we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10, which keep in mind this is all one long speech from Moses. Moses says, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. In fact, he repeats that four or five times in different words. We'll read one more example in Deuteronomy 8 verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, 
When you lift you up, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Skipping down to verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. We could keep reading. Basically, Moses' whole speech is, don't be proud. Teach this to your children. Be humble. Realize God is blessing you. Don't mess it up. He tells them, your beautiful houses, your hewn-out wells, all the wonderful blessings that you'll inherit in the land which you didn't get for yourself and all the wonderful things that you will build for yourself, it will tempt you away from God. Don't be tempted. And so Jehonadab, he quotes from this speech, he quotes the fifth commandment, and he tells his children, you're not going to have beautiful houses. You're not going to have vineyard, field, or seed. You're going to live in tents, and you're going to like it. <laughs> he didn't say you're going to like it, but... He was a father to them and that he built a hedge around them. And we often think of that as a bad thing. We certainly don't build a hedge with Scripture when we say, God instructs us and if we don't do likewise, it's a sin. He didn't tell them it was a sin not to do this here. He told them, if you do do this, it'll be well with you. You'll live many days in the land which you're sojourners. I hope I haven't overstated the point here, but it's important for this reason. If we keep on reading in Jeremiah 35, and this is an amazing passage for our consideration. In verse 12, it says, Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons, 244 years earlier, I might add, they are performed, for to this day they drink no wine, but obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early in speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way. Amend your doings and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear, nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I have called to them, but they have not answered." And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. You'll notice forever is a much larger number than one, and it's a much larger number than four. Jonadab was given an amazing promise from God, and we wouldn't normally think of somebody who is a Pharisee and adds to the law of God as being blessed by God, and that's because he was not being a Pharisee. He was being a wise father. 
He was far-seeing. He knew the causes that would lead the people of God into rebellion and causing them to forget God. And he told his children, if you'll abstain from those things, you don't have to. But if you do, you'll be blessed. You will live many days in the land which your sojourners. And so they did it. They lived in tents. They didn't drink grape juice. They didn't have field or seed, but they just were simple shepherds. And 122 years before Jeremiah 35 was written, you'll notice 2 Kings 9 was 244 years earlier, so right at the halfway point, Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. The first time we meet the Rechabites, they were in Israel. What happened? They picked up their tents, they walked a little further south, and they set them back down. They didn't have any houses to fight over. They didn't have very many worldly possessions that they were worried about losing. They were a simple people that served God. They come to Judea, and Jeremiah calls them, and still they say, we're obeying our Father. We're not drinking any wine. We're still not planting field or seed or having vineyards and all these different things. And God says, you've obeyed your father, when 244 years earlier he commanded you once, and my people, I have rose early and begged with them from all the prophets that I have sent to them, and still they've not obeyed me, and so there's a doom and a curse on them. But you'll never lack a man to stand before me. I don't know exactly what that promise means. I have a couple guesses. One of them might be that to this day there are faithful members of the people of God that can trace their lineage back to the Rechabites. I'm sure there's no paperwork to trace it with, but they are descended from Him. Or, this might be more likely, the wording of that promise is very similar to when God speaks to David and tells him that he'll never lack a man to sit on the throne in Judah. And that was fulfilled in Christ. And so although this man is not a king, he's not like the other two, his faith might have landed him a spot in the ancestry of Jesus. Now you'll notice in Matthew and in Luke, he's not included in the genealogies. But you know, our grandparents aren't just one line up through our ancestry. We probably have thousands and thousands of grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and so on. And... We don't even know who all of them are, who they were. And so Jesus very well could have been a descendant of Jehonadab some way or another. We're not told in Scripture. It's a great mystery, but it's a wonderful promise. I want us to take this away from it, though. Ahab was an awful guy. Awful. Terrible. Did everything wrong. Had repeated chances to do better. God spoke to him on multiple occasions, and still he did whatever he pleased. And so he was not established. One generation sat on the throne and hardly that. Jehu, he's the type of person that we often see and look up to. He was a king. He was a good king at that. He did what he was supposed to as king. He, got and he went out and killed all the enemies of the throne. He killed all the Baal worshippers. He was zealous to do it. God told him to do it, and he did it right then. He said, come and see my great zeal that I have for the Lord. He was a valiant warrior. He was an intelligent man coming up with very complex plans that went and came to fruition. But Jehu didn't love the Lord God with all his heart. And so his children, they progressively drifted further and further from God. And I'll say this. A lot of people today want to be like Jehu. They want to serve God wherever it's advantageous to them. And publicly and visibly, they might fool everybody. 
But the people that know them privately and personally are going to see through the scheme. They're going to see where their priorities really lie. Their priorities lie with themselves. And if that's the type of example that you leave for your family, you might not leave that example for anybody else. Everybody else might think you're a saint. But if your family sees you as an individual that only loves God when it's convenient, you're leaving them an example that if they follow, it will be their undoing and yours as well. We do not need to be Jehus in the church. We do not need to be self-seeking. We need to be nobodies that we know nothing about hardly, except that we love God and His law and we will teach other people to do likewise. Jehonadab, he comes up twice in the Scriptures. We know almost nothing about him except that he taught his children to be faithful to God. And 244 years later, they were still out and kicking. In fact, 320-ish years later, they were still out and kicking. Because if we look over in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3, verse 14... Malchijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of beth Hakarim, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. That's a man that after the Babylonian captivity was in the city of Jerusalem rebuilding it, a leader among the people, Malchijah the Rechabite. Jehonadab was blessed by God and God kept His promise. Now, I don't want to overstate all this. I don't want to make something out of it that it's not. But oftentimes, people do not have the attitude that they need to teach their children to serve God first and foremost, and that things of the world come second. And yet, that's how Jehonadab found his success and received his blessing. He told his kids, there are all these things that are beautiful and nice in the world, and yet if you will abstain from them, it'll be better for you. He told them, don't live in houses. That's insane. It worked. Today, and this really frightens me, we judge the success of a parent by how successful their child is in worldly endeavors. If your kid has straight A's all through school, they're on the academic decathlon team, the science Olympiad team, they show at the fair every summer in 4-H and FFA. They're also playing three varsity sports. They do all these community service hours. They get a good scholarship and go to a very prestigious college far, far away from anybody that they know. Maybe there's a church there. Who knows if they'll actually go. They go to school for four years, stay longer, get their doctorate and master's degrees. They get a very good paying job where they have to work 60 to 80 hours a week to be competitive in their job market. They don't have time for their family or their kids. We look at that person and we say, that's a successful individual. I know people that are in their late 20s that don't have high school degrees and they could tangle most of our preachers up in Bible conversations because their parents taught them it's better to be poor and please God than to be wealthy in the things of this world. And I'll say this, if your children live in tents, that's better than if they go to hell. I'm not saying we need to be Pharisees and add to the law of God. I'm not saying that we need to be Amish or Mennonites and that we just hide from the world. But we do need to teach priorities. We need to teach that the things of God are more important than the things of the world come second because we, like the Rechabites, we're sojourners. 
We're not promised an earthly inheritance as the people of God anymore. We're promised a heavenly inheritance that we're waiting for. In one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks of the descendants of Abraham as being people that dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. They lived in tents. And those that do such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and He has prepared a place for them. The Rechabites, they're an awful lot like that. And once again, I'm not saying that we should live in tents, but that's a better alternative than a lot of other things. I hope if you take anything from this sermon tonight, it's that people that are weird, people that do things in a way that we don't always think is normal or the best, they might be the ones that are doing their very best to serve God. And we likewise should do whatever we can find to be wise in the pursuit of serving and pleasing God. We should listen to the wisdom of our parents. There's a reason that Paul quotes the fifth commandment in the New Testament in Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. We need the wisdom of those that are older and gone on before. We need guidance and help from those that know better than we do. And hopefully, we seek guidance out and wisdom at its purest and best source as well. You know, there's a father spoken of in the Bible that I'd like for us to consider as our closing thoughts for tonight. In Isaiah chapter 9, of all places, a child is spoken of as a father. You say, well, how can that happen? Here's how the Scripture explains. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Forever is a beautiful promise from God. From that time forward, forever, Christ will reign, and He will judge His people, He will rule them, He will guide them as that wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You'll notice the title is The Appearance of Zeal, and we haven't really talked about that. People can appear zealous, and yet mankind wanes in their conviction. God's zeal does not pass away with the passing of years. God is zealous to perform His promises. The child that was to be born to His people has since been born and since sat down on the throne of His kingdom. And He left commandments for us before He ascended. In Matthew chapter 28, in verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's sitting on the throne. He's fulfilling the promise to his father David. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you, and lo... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's another forever promise. That means that the things He commanded there, they did not die out. 
on the day of Pentecost. In fact, they were reaffirmed on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up and told the people, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. They didn't die out at the end of the age of the apostles. The command to be baptized for salvation is a command that inundates the New Testament. We know for certain from the inspired words of God that those who reject that wonderful blessing, as Jesus would put it in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who believes not shall be condemned. If you don't believe... The assumption is that you won't be baptized. And yet if you do believe, Jesus assumes you will be to the point where he says, if you don't believe, you're condemned. But if you believe and are baptized, you're saved. It's the forgiveness of sins, according to Peter in Acts 2.38. In 1 Peter 3.21, Peter says, baptism, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism now saves us. And so if there's anybody here today who has not yet come in obedience to the gospel, excuse me, if you've not yet repented of the past sins in your life, if you've not yet been willing to confess Jesus as the Son of God, the risen Savior of all who would come to Him and plead for mercy, if you've not yet appealed to God for a clean conscience through baptism, we urge you to do so.